0: Welcome to Bloom, a conversations podcast about anything and everything. Today's episode is proudly brought to you by The Flying Zucchinis, a company delivering fresh and affordable fruit, veg and other produce across Melbourne each week. Check out www.theflyingzucchinis.com to get your order in and be sure to follow them on Instagram and Facebook for their exclusive and delicious recipes. I'm lucky to be joined today by Ellie Simons, Vice President of the Australian Parthenon Committee body advocating for the reunification of the Parthenon Sculptures in Greece. Aside from her political and cultural advocacy work, Ellie has a unique academic background across business, archaeology and psychology. Ellie has strong Greek heritage, with her family arriving in Australia from Cyprus in 1951. In just a few days' time, Ellie will be returning to Greece, so we're very lucky to be speaking with her on her last Wednesday in Melbourne for the foreseeable future. Ellie has become known to the Australian public as the loving, caring and articulate mother to the late Samuel Simons, as well as Raphael and Joel. Ellie, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you this evening. Now, for our listeners who aren't as familiar with you or your story, could you provide a brief overview of your life to date?
1: Yes, I can. I was born in Melbourne. My parents are of Greek background. My father was born in Cyprus and he came to Australia as a 19-year-old in 1951. And my mother, her parents were from a beautiful Greek island called Ithaca. Mm. And my mum was born here, my, my grandparents having arrived in the 1920s.
0: How wonderful. And Ithaca is quite a famous and poetic island in Greek literature, isn't it?
1: It is, well it features um, in Homer the the Odyssey which is the second great book after the Iliad Mm -hmm. was um, about the adventures of Odysseus and his return to Ithaca and Mm -hmm. his travails along the way which took him 10 years to get to Ithaca and it's also a very famous Greek poet called Kavafi wrote a beautiful poem about Ithaca which is about the the journey, not the destination.
0: How stunning. And I think I remember from my ancient Greek lessons years ago of a kind of Greek story about coming home or returning home called a nostos or a nostros or something.
1: Nostos, yes, uh, which is the journey home, the return home. So yes, it's a beautiful concept. And uh, the Odyssey is actually a story of Nostos, but because the, the wife Penelope is home waiting for Odysseus to return, but he gets waylaid with all these adventures and, and travails, and he does arrive there eventually. Mm-hmm.
0: Speaking of Greece, you've got a one-way ticket to Athens in a couple of days. and I was hoping you might be able to speak a bit about Greece as a country and what it means for you and your identity and what this homecoming, or nostos in itself, uh, means for you.
1: Well, I love Greece. So I think people that know me uh, know that I love Greece. When you grow up as second-generation diaspora, it's it's quite, a, it's quite a complicated hat that you have to wear. You, you know that in your host culture, in, I mean, Australia is my home, I'm Australian, but you know you're not Anglo, um, and so and then when I go to Greece, I know that I'm not fully Greek. Mm. So I often think that the second generation diaspora is kind of in no man's land a little bit. They sort of feel mm. like they belong in both places, but they belong in neither. Mm. So when I go to Greece, or now I've had the chance to to spend quite a lot more time there, I feel um, I feel like I. I feel like I come alive in Greece. There's some part of me that was unlived in my Australian life that gets to be expressed when I'm in Greece. Like what? Like talking with my hands a lot. (laughs) Um, Like what? Mm. Well, I feel like now that I have settled in Greece now and spent half my time there, I feel like I'm living my unlived Greek life. The one that I would have had had my... Grandfather and father not got on a boat and sailed to Australia that I would have been born in Greece and I would mm. have had a Greek life. Mm. So now I get to be in Greece, not as a tourist, but as an Athenian. I live in Athens as an Athenian. Very lovely. It is lovely. I live at the base of the Acropolis, so mm. it's quite extraordinary when I go out my front door and, like, there it is. There is the Parthenon and the Theatre of Dionysus, which... All the great plays, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides mm. plays were performed for the first time in the Theatre of Dionysus, which is fifty meters from my
0: front door. So much history as well. It's extraordinary. When I everything.
1: absolutely when I walk through the streets of Plaka at the at the foot of the Acropolis, I I know that all these extraordinary names actually walked in those very streets. Mm. So uh, I, you, you can't, it, you just, it, you feel it. I mean, you feel it and you're walking through mm-hmm. the streets and you're seeing all these things, layers of history, the, 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 the library of Hadrian in a beautiful square with cafes, all mm. these layers of history, you know you're in a, a city that's 3000 years old mm-hmm. and it's quite an extraordinary feeling. Mm.
0: And do you feel kind of more at home in terms of being closer to where your ancestors were as well? <gasps>
1: I love Australia and, you know, obviously I'm Australian. But I, I do feel, obviously, it, Greece is my spiritual home. And, yes, I do. I do feel incredibly at home in Greece mm. and, and in Cyprus. Uh, my, my father's from Cyprus and I love I love going to my mountain village of Agros in, in Cyprus, in the Trudos Mountains. I love being there. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's home.
0: And what do you think you'll miss most about Melbourne as a city and and Melbourne life?
1: Well, Melbourne life right now in lockdown (laughs) is not really... it's it's a ghost town it's quite extraordinary the times we're living in at the moment um look I love Melbourne Melbourne's my hometown I'm a I'm a Melbourne girl I am I'm an urban girl I I I've lived in inner Melbourne and now I live in inner Athens so I'm not a I'm not a suburban no. girl anymore but girl yes no no I'm an urban girl
0: and for our listeners who aren't as familiar with the Parthenon sculptures and the historical issues there and also the Australian Parthenon Committee and the mission of that organisation, can you fill us in on, I suppose, the, the background of the issues um, at play and also what your role involves with the Parthenon Committee?
1: Yes, well, being Greek, growing up Greek, these are, we, we are well versed in our history and very proud of our mm. very long history when I was a little girl, I knew about the Parthenon and I knew that the Parthenon marbles had been stolen by Lord Elgin and that half of them were in the British Museum in London. And later on, when I the children were at home and Samuel had been unwell, I decided to do an archeology span degree just to keep my brain ticking over. Mm. And I obviously thoroughly enjoyed that. And I knew that the Parthenon Marbles issue was still uh, unresolved. and But I didn't really have a lot of time to devote to anything other than the, the boys at that period. So it was often in the back of my mind that I wanted to be an advocate for them. And fast forward to the last few years where I've been able to actually become involved in that and I became the vice president of the Australian Parthenon committee Mm -hmm. and that has involved obviously several trips to Greece which is hey it's a tough job but (laughs) someone someone's (laughs) got to do it um, which obviously I love and now I uh, basically spend half of my time in Greece Mm -hmm. And I get to advocate for this issue, which means I meet politicians and ambassadors and journalists from all around the world, which has opened up an amazing world of people to to meet and to talk to. Who's the most interesting to.
0: politician you've met?
1: Oh, I've met lots of politicians. I've met the president of Greece, uh, mm-hmm. the culture ministers. Mm-hmm. Um, I've met a lot of Australian politicians because I've lobbied in... Canberra, Federal Parliament. So, oh, yes, they're all interesting in their way. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> and why is the issue important for Greek Melburnians or Australians?
1: Yes. Well, look, I think the the issue is important for everybody because it is the most extraordinary artwork really, of, of mankind. I mean, it's the foundation piece of artwork of Western civilization. It's a building that is 2,500 years old and it is geometrically perfect. It is geometrically perfect and as in terms of the architecture and then the, 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 the sculptured frieze around the building is is you know a second work of art. I mean the the frieze around the building narrates the story of Athens from from mythology. Right. And it's sequential and it's like if you like Geoffrey Robertson, famous Jeffrey Robertson refers to it as a as a, a film reel of, mm. of the history of Athens carved in stone. It's quite extraordinary. And to think that Lord Elgin erected scaffolding for two years in, in eighteen hundred and one and literally hacksawed half of that frieze off and sailed to England with those things in boxes and then became bankrupt and sold them to the English government and they now they reside in the British Museum it's just a travesty and so
0: the proposal is to reunite them in Athens obviously correct yes. so
1: for many years that the, the Brits have obfuscated and said no no they were acquired legally and and put up all these straw man arguments to retain mm. them but The Greeks obviously want their marbles back, their sculptures back, and they have um, an extraordinary Acropolis Museum, which has the other half that Elgin didn't take. Uh, They are in the Acropolis Museum, and they are awaiting the half that are in the British Museum. So, you know, we we have a fight on our hands, and, and we are working very hard in Greece and in the UK, to create awareness and find a solution why is it important for them to be together is it like two lovers being apart? yes it is well it's important whole, to be together well yeah. okay uh, well uh, uh, an example would be the the mona lisa i mean if we just chopped half the face off the mona lisa and she mm. was in the top half was in paris and the bottom half was in the uffizi gallery i mean would that be a good thing i don't think so no. um, th- We argue with the Parthenon that the whole building is the artwork. It's one complete piece of art as it is. The sculptures were not separate to the building, the sculptures were part of the building Mm -hmm. and also the sculptures were not separate to each other Mm -hmm. the whole frieze is one artwork so it works together correct so we we talk about the unified monument argument if you like which was a phrase that i coined which has become (laughs) common usage the unified monument uh, yes copyright the unified monument argument really is basically saying that yes the, the whole building is the artwork it it was conceived as one one complete artwork there was no part of it that should be displayed separately to another part Mm. and that's why it's wrong that half the marbles are in the british museum
0: it's interesting to contrast how you're arguing in favor of preserving and restoring historical monuments and sculptures and statues when all around the world at the moment people are tearing them down across the us and the uk especially um so could you reflect on that
1: well, yes. I mean, look. In history, we've seen many, many examples of this. in In ancient history, the Christians burnt down the Library of Alexandra, Alexandria, which my father always used to <laughs> complain about. It was the an extraordinary repository of um, ancient manuscripts in the world. They were copied and filed. Every the, the, the objective of the Library of Alexandria was to actually. Be the repository of information mm. across the ancient world, and so to burn that down, it was an it was probably one of the greatest tragedies mm. of of cultural loss. Then we had the iconoclasts of the six hundreds that pulled down all the religious kinds of um, artwork in the Byzantine world, and then through the Medieval periods, the mm-hmm. the Inquisition, mm-hmm. all these periods in history, tearing down, tearing down monuments ice is and more things, recently and ISIS more recently, yeah. yes, mm-hmm. you know Palmyra, the the beautiful temple there, and look, it's just, it's it's, and now in America, it, it's, mm. yes, look, it's obviously political, but look, uh, I don't think it's a useful thing to be tearing things down. I mean, if what we need to do with our history is to admire the good things and learn from the mistakes i mean
0: yeah yeah and to shift gears a little bit at the start of the interview and indeed throughout we've mentioned your late son samuel about whom you've spoken eloquently and sensitively in the media samuel tragically passed away from brain cancer in october 2018 could you speak to our listeners about samuel's initial diagnosis at age four and how it changed your life and the life of your family
1: Yes well look it really did change our life. Um, I was a young mum, young bride, young mum. Um, Samuel was four, Raphael was two and uh, we'd had a pretty lovely beautiful home life up until that point and um, he was very, he was well, he was normal and so was Raphael and then one day Samuel went to kinder and kinder he collapsed with a brain hemorrhage just out of no nowhere and he didn't it was not clear at the time what it was he had a very bad headache he couldn't open his eyes they rang us we we collected him and I immediately sensed that it wasn't it was really a sinister thing there was something about it that didn't make sense Mm. And uh, we ended up at the children's hospital within an hour or two. We took him there and and then the journey unfolded very badly after that point.
0: Yeah. And do you want to speak a bit about...
1: Yeah, I, I can speak yeah. about that. Uh, he... Um, well, that particular night was pretty awful. It. He was in the emergency ward. They were trying to understand what it was. He, he wasn't... He was conscious but he was not really um receptive he couldn't really understand what was happening he we couldn't he he couldn't open his eyes he was in a lot of pain discomfort and then eventually about 10 hours later they did a decided to do a brain scan Uh, so um and they came out he came out of the brain scan at age four and they said he's actually having a brain hemorrhage and they rushed him to intensive care so it was pretty harrowing Mm. and uh it it being at the children's hospital in intensive care with very 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 sick children you're a young mum and i was a young mum i was not 29 30 and um, i had the two-year-old at home rafael so it was all pretty terrible and then it took about a week for them he was in intensive care on a morphine drip because he was in a lot of pain he lost a lot of weight It took them another week or two to do another scan to... And then the brain tumour was revealed as the sinister cause of the brain hemorrhage. Eventually, they found that the brain hemorrhage was caused by a brain tumour that basically ruptured and hemorrhaged. So every fork in the road we reached kept going down the worst of the two options and um, they decided that obviously they were going to operate, which was pretty diabolical because it wasn't in a good location at all. It was a very complex operation. He had seven or eight hours of surgery um, He and he was already weak by that stage because he'd lost four kilos and when you only weigh 18 kilos and you lose four, pretty sick so um again after the surgery it presented very badly after the surgery the surgeon had said that it looked it was really a mess and um, it was a sinister quite a sinister tumor and that we should take him home and enjoy him were the words they were going to it, they were going to treat him, but they said his odds of surviving were, you know, maybe 1%. Mm. So it wasn't good, but they were going to do the treatment. So we, we, he had chemotherapy and then he had to have the radiation treatment. And the radiation treatment is quite diabolical on developing brains, so children under the age of seven and yeah. the... Um, the more you are under seven, the more damage it does. So he was only four, so that was that presented a very unpalatable choice for us. But what kind of damage do they say? Basically, radiation fries brain cells, but connections, neurons, so synapses. So so it does cognitive damage to developing brains. Mm. But one of the one of the neurosurgeons at the time talked to me about a a new concept at that time it was the mid-90s called neuroplasticity which we now know is um is something that helps developing brains and that we can grow new neurons and because I I I took that on board and that became uh, after Samuel after Samuel had the treatment and we were waiting for him to um, to see if it was successful or not We found that um, that that was in that stayed in my mind as as something that we needed to address,
0: Mm.
1: and so I became quite focused on his development as a mum does with normal children, Um, a mum particularly does with a child that might have challenges. So in that first year um after Samuel's treatment after the radiation he was he was very sick after the radiation he was very weak he'd lost a lot of weight his scalp was burnt he lost his hair he was very frail we we focused on Keeping him and Raphael happy, as happy as we could with their friends, keeping their regular activities and things. we I think we made a a conscious decision at that point not to immerse immerse him in the world of cancer. we We made a conscious choice that we weren't going to be a cancer family, he wasn't going to be a kid with cancer, he was going to be, normal child so we we really in that period when we still didn't know he was going to survive but we did make conscious decisions about how we were going to manage his environment and make him feel like a happy five-year-old so he went off to school the next year he was still frail but by that stage after a year had passed the doctors, I mean, to have a, a, a cure, you it's they call it, they speak in terms of a five-year cure. So at one year, being free of ca- cancer, you're not technically cured, but because the tumour was a very aggressive one, some of the doctors said, look, you know, if it was going to grow back, it would have grown back by now. So look, maybe we're going to be cautiously optimistic. So another six months went by. He was having regular scans. The second year went by, he was in grade one, he was in grade two. We started to sort of get our life back to normal. Then um, Joel arrived, number three child. Mm. And and that period was going along okay, except at a regular scan when Samuel was eight, they found another tumor which turned out to be, they, they decided to remove it. It turned out to be a benign tumor called a meningioma. Uh, So, one of the problems with radiation is that it treats cancer, it cures cancer, but down the track, it also causes, it can cause further cancers, which they call the late effects of the treatment. So, the meningioma at eight was a direct result of the radiation he'd had at four to cure the first tumour. So, then we got through that episode and he was in about grade two or three then so we we chugged along and we we immersed him and the other boys in various activities all all the while being conscious of his developing brain and putting him in environments where he was learning so piano chess taekwondo swimming basketball football all those typical things but I, I guess it was in my mind you know, I had a, a purpose and that was to grow neurons so that he could continue to yeah. develop having that concept of neuroplasticity in the back of my mind. So he finished primary school, but uh, halfway through his grade six year, he developed thyroid cancer. So at age 12, he had to have a thyroidectomy, which was quite a dramatic operation at 12 to have your thyroid out to have your neck opened up it was pretty diabolical as well but he did that it was in term three of grade six and he recovered pretty promptly and he finished grade six and then went on to secondary school yeah. at Melbourne Grammar which he really enjoyed yeah. and he it was a challenge for him to to schooling in general was a challenge for him he his intel, he was intelligent and but he, the learning environment he, he used to get quite tired. So, but he 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 loved his secondary schooling, and he managed to navigate that period of th- those six years. He had another ten operations on his neck, yeah, because the thyroid cancer had spread to the lymph nodes around in his neck. So he had ten further operations during his teens, which presented a challenge. But despite all that, he was still able to do well at school and play sport. He swam, he played basketball, he played football. And we had a pretty normal, happy life. Mm. And then he finished year 12 and he, the thyroid cancer had presented itself yet again. So between... Secondary school and university had to have another two very serious operations on his neck, which were again very complex And he managed to get through those and he started at Melbourne University And he did uh, an arts degree and went to college and he was really happy there And it was about that time that he discovered um, a love of volunteering Mm. and so the Peter McCallum Hospital, where he'd been treated at, invited him to join their Youth Cancer Advisory Board because they were developing the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre and they were developing a special area and a special service for young people with cancer and they wanted to have input from young people that had had cancer so that they could incorporate... And address the, their particular needs because it's a very different experience for a young person a teenager a 20 year old to have cancer it's a very different experience to a 40 year old or a 60 year old or an 80 year old
0: yeah can you reflect on samuel's work at peter mac and the victorian comprehensive cancer center and the profound and lasting impact he had on the medical sector more broadly
1: Yes, well, Samuel had a lot to do with the medical profession in his life, as I did. I mean, we were always at doctor's appointments, at scans, having blood tests, having scans. He, he must have had about 100 MRI, just MRI brain scans in his life. Mm. Probably another 20 or 30 CAT scans, another 20 or 30 ultrasounds. I mean, he, he was... At least scanned two to three hundred times in his life. Wow. So each of those appointments involves an appointment at a hospital. You have to park the car, you have to wait your turn, you know, you have to kill three hours to do those mm. kinds of things. So his life is punctuated with a lot of those oh. kinds of appointments and things. But as I said before, we tried to normalise his life so we the way we framed those events was that they were just punctuation marks they weren't his actual life and we discovered that while we were sitting there waiting for a scan we could still be living we were conversing together so we could have been in the car driving to a basketball game but If we were sitting in the hospital waiting for a scan it didn't make any difference he and i were there or a a friend had come and so we decided to use those moments and not think of them as here i am at the hospital again so we we found that humor was a very important part of our family given obviously dad's line of work and our household was a very funny household. I mean we had the three boys were each incredibly funny. We, we watched a lot of comedy and that became a very big part of how we managed we, we could still find humour mm-hmm. in the face of all these difficult things.
0: It's often noted that Samuel made such a huge contribution at Peter Mack um, because of his unique advocacy as someone with lived experience of cancer over a number of years. And there are fundamental changes to the Comprehensive Cancer Centre, which are um, enacted today, such as changes in youth palliative care, for instance.
1: Well, he was on the Youth Cancer Advisory Board for about five years, and so that was happening while they were developing the new Cancer Centre. And his input was very valued in, in in that environment. They were very grateful to have his input because... He had had cancer for his whole life. It wasn't just one episode of one year, you know, as a teenager. It was pretty much his whole life. So his contribution there was quite valuable. And he he made a real difference in that youth cancer centre that they developed in Peter Mac.
0: Mm, yeah, Almost as soon as Samuel received his diagnosis at age four, there were medical professionals saying that he wouldn't have long to live and that you should enjoy your last moments with him. Samuel went on to live a full life of service and achievement, surrounded by friends and family who loved him and with a profound legacy in the medical and charitable sectors, as we have mentioned. What do you think is the most important lesson you've learned from Samuel's life?
1: Well, he his life was always full of challenge but an adversity but he was unfailingly cheerful mm. he was unfailingly positive he was wise perceptive he got up each day and decided made a conscious decision to have a good day and this was, I mean, the the, the last tumour that he was diagnosed with was age 26. So up until that point, we thought that he was and he thought that his he had his life ahead of him. Mm. That tumour came, that new tumour at 26, that came out of left field. It was a curveball because he, he had then, after he finished his bachelor's degree, he went on to... Finish his master's degree. He was employed. He he was he was making progress in his working life. He had completed the the his roles at the cancer center. The cancer center got built. He was very happy. He was thriving, and then all of a sudden at twenty six, he had a new diagnosis, a brand new tumor, which. They operated on again, and then they said, "Yes, well, this one, this one, I'm afraid, is terminal yeah. glioblastoma multiform." And one of the one of the sad truths is that cancer treatment for brain tumours has made very little progress in 50 years, and that is really, it's just not it's not good enough because most other cancers, in fact, all other cancers have made treatment progress. So to be told that, I I think he, obviously, when things started to unravel for him, it was pretty diabolical and he started to decline and it was very difficult for us to watch and it, it felt... His contribution and his attitude to life had been so positive, and it was very difficult to then watch it all unravel mm. where he had tried so hard for so long to be normal and to to live a really good life of and, and to give to people, to be positive, to be cheerful, and to to think of what could be achieved each day rather than I can't do this because so and that was something I was very conscious of modeling to him Mm. that rather to frame things with I can't or that we would frame things by I can you know what can you do today Mm. I can do this I can do that so that was a very um, positive example and that was something I really strove hard to model to him and, of course, to the other two boys. Yeah,
0: yeah. And what has Samuel's life and legacy taught you about gratitude?
1: About gratitude? Well, obviously, we're very grateful. I mean, we could have lost him at four. So, firstly, we were extremely grateful to have him another 23 years after, after that particular diagnosis. I felt when he did pass away at 27, I, I felt... At first, well, I was obviously pretty numb, but I felt that I did question why he had to have such a difficult life for twenty-three more years, and then his life was taken away, and and that was something I I probably still grapple with that. But I've started. You can't. It's very difficult to live with that, so you have to reframe that as well. So our. our Our own mind and the way we think is a very powerful mechanism for managing the things that happen to us and managing our feelings and managing our thoughts. And so I guess the legacy, what I think about is the way he lived his life was a, a very good example of, of how anyone should live their life mm. is to get up each day and think what what can I do today that's constructive that's that's thoughtful that's kind I mean he was Samuel was a very giving person and I guess that that was sort of something that I modeled as well I was someone in the community and, and through the schools that I was participating and helping you know coaching teams and, and helping other kids and other families and participating and so that was something that he did as well and that was a very powerful way to live his life because mm-hmm. he did make a difference and he, he actively chose that. Mm-hmm. Even at a young age, he was aware. He had, he had the awareness to know that the way we live our life each day is, is in our own hands, it's in our own power. We have the power to have a good day if mm-hmm. we choose that. So he was a- an active participant in having a good life.
0: Absolutely. And you and your family have been very open with the public about Samuel's and your family's experience of living with cancer, because of course the illness affects more than just one person. Can you reflect on the experience and importance of being so open and generous about what is a deeply painful and private thing to live through and what you hope your communications advocacy have done for the hundreds of thousands of other families in Australia going through similar experiences to yours?
1: Well, yes, it was. Initially, because my husband was in the public eye, our family was in the media, were in the media, and we found that initially we, there was a bit of a code of ethics actually, to tell you the truth, and the media knew that we were obviously going through a very difficult period and they were quite respectful of that. And we decided that we had a public life, but that part of our life didn't have to be public. And so, because as I said before, we were we were living uh, a normal life. We were we were providing Samuel with a normal life. So fast forward to when he was eighteen, Australian Story approached us and said that they would like to tell Samuel's story, and it was a powerful story to tell. And so we felt that at eighteen he had the toolbox, I suppose, to to actually participate in the telling of that story. So. We, we agreed to, to make that a strange story and, and it was, quite a, it, was a, it was a really powerful thing to do and it was very useful for Samuel because on the cusp of his own adulthood he was able to tell that story and then kind of leave it there and enter his adult life with that story sort of done and dusted and told. So he was able to then spend the next eight years of his young adult life just getting on with it. Mm. So then obviously the, the final tumour arrived at 26 and that, you know, ended his life and that was an absolute tragedy and gut-wrenching and, it, look, it still is. But in terms of the public, I suppose I, we have spoken... I have spoken publicly and I'm speaking now and I'm, I'm getting to a point where, you know, there's a lot of things I do want to say about it and... I will write in the future and reflect and articulate more about what i want to say yeah. about that journey and yeah, and yeah. and 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 i do believe that most people uh, a lot of people say to me oh you're so strong how, how have you managed that for so long but i do actually believe that most people have the power within themselves to manage very challenging circumstances and and i think we make a choice you make the conscious choice and you have to actively choose to to make the best out of whatever opportunity you have
0: that's really beautiful thank you and finally on this subject what is your most cherished memory of Samuel and how do you choose to remember him and his life
1: Samuel Samuel was an incredibly sweet human being a very generous kind loving person he if you were if Samuel was in the room, the room was happy. Mm-hmm. He had a very beautiful presence in a room, quite... I, I've, I've been playing around with a few different adjectives and words, but one that really springs to mind with him is the word grace. Mm-hmm. He, he exuded grace, a grace of calmness and clarity. He, he, knew, he knew who he was. He knew his life was often in danger. He lived with that his whole life and even at a very young age, he just understood that. So he understood from a very young age without it being taught to him, he understood what was important in life and what was the most important Thing to him and what we all know to be true is that it's it's relationships with people it's how we relate to people and how people relate to us and how we conduct ourselves and how we think and feel these are the things that are the most meaningful mm-hmm. so and that was something that he understood yeah. so that's what I'm reminded of with him beautiful
0: to link back to the start of the interview and the Parthenon sculptures. I was hoping you could reflect on the different ways in which we memorialise loved ones and the memory of people like Samuel and how we choose to remember or memorialise historical figures and moments through statues. So what are the ways in which you remember Samuel and his life?
1: Well, look, we are about getting on for 18 months now since we lost Samuel. The first year, I have to say, I was quite numb. I, I was in a state of shock really. And I, I, it was very difficult. The last six months, I've been able to process it a bit more and I've been incredibly sad. And I have to find a way to live with that sadness and honour the fact that he's missing. And I have to manage that. But I have to live the rest of my life with that. And I could... Again, going back on what I touched on, I could wake up every morning and I could choose to be sad every single day of my life. and I don't think that's a particularly productive way for me to live the rest of my life so I have to I have to come to a, a my own understanding of how I can live in a way that honors Samuel's memory respectfully, and that I have a place for the sadness, but that I allow myself to still try and engage in life and be happy and try and find things that bring joy and that are productive. Because, it, it again, it's it, you have a choice. I think you have a choice. Yeah. And I taught Samuel not to be a victim, not to not to think of himself as... Um, he wasn't defined by being a sick kid. And I don't wish to be defined by being, you know, a bereaved mother for the rest of my life. I, I am a bereaved mother. That's what I am. I get that. But um, I, I have the right to seek happiness, and I must allow myself to do that and still honour Samuel's memory. Obviously one of the ways to do that is, is to I I kind of every day I, I often find myself talking to him in my mind. I, I have conversations with him mm. or sometimes I come across something and I think, oh God, he would love that, you know, mm. and in my mind I share it with him. Mm. And and I often think of some of his you know lovely qualities and I try to remember those mm. and enact them in my daily life so that's that's how I memorialize him Beautiful. In, and, it, and it's very and it's very personal and you know grief is a very difficult thing and a lot of people don't often know whether to mention him or not but uh, I I like mentioning him uh, I I I'm happy to say if I come across something I'm happy to say oh look Samuel you know used to like that Um, just as if I would say Raphael or Joel really enjoys Hmm. you know British comedy or whatever it's just Hmm. it's really nice to be able to be given permission by people but but I think people find that they're not sure so I realise that I have to give them the cue that mm. yes, you can mention Samuel's name, and You're I'm not going. To, I'm not going to fall apart. It, you know, it's lovely that we can keep him alive by mentioning mm. him uh, from time to time. Beautiful.
0: It's a beautiful note to end today's conversation on Ellie, and thank you so much for your generous, honest, and uh, and kind reflections. It's uh, we've covered quite a lot, and it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much for having me. Thank you and safe flight to Athens. Thank you very much.